I invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 as we continue working our way through the text. We find ourselves starting in chapter 7 this morning, and I'm just going to read to you one particular verse from it. We'll, We'll read this, and then we will get to work. I'd like to draw your attention to verses 5 and 6, Romans 7, 5 to 6. We'll just remind ourselves of the thrust of what Paul is saying in these first few verses, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us, and we'll get busy. It says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive, captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not according to the old way of the written code or of the letter. We've been released, we've been discharged from the law. And it is an incredibly sweet release. Let's just take a moment and thank God for that release. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much that because of what your son has done on the cross, we now can die to our old life. We can now die to a previous way of life that was held prisoner, held captive under the law. And because of your son, Jesus, we have been joined to someone else. We've been joined to the Lord. And we've been indwelt by your spirit. Father, as we begin to work our way through these next chapters, in verse chapter 7 and 8, and, and over the next several weeks as we begin to work our way through chapter 7, we just pray, Lord, that your word would be made clear by your spirit as he illuminates and shines upon the text and opens our hearts and our minds to understand what it is that you are saying. So we would understand our position in relation to the old and the blessing we've been given in the new. Father, help us to understand what it means to no longer be bound by the written code, but to serve in the new way, the living way of the spirit. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If such a conversation had happened, it would have indeed been a perplexing conversation. Many years ago, and many of you are probably aware of this, I used to serve in the United States Marine Corps. I was once upon a time a Marine, and uh, around about 2004, I was discharged from the Marine Corps. Now, if any of you have ever served in the military, you probably can recall that day that was your last day. It's actually a couple of days up to the last day. Uh, you have to go around to all of the different places on base. They have this thing called the PX, which is like, it's kind of like a grocery store, shopping mall kind of thing where you can buy things at discounted prices. And you have to go, and you have to get them to sign off on a form that says that you don't have any outstanding balance. You have to go to the base library. You have to get them to sign off on a form that says you don't have any 
checked out library books. You have to take your rifle and you have to go to the armorers and you have to turn in your rifle and get him to sign a form. And you go through this whole rigmarole in which over the course of two days, you, you fully sever yourself from the military. You turn in all the stuff, all your gear, everything that they've given you. And when it's all said and done, you take your two sea bags. Marines call them sea bags. They're giant green duffel bags. And uh, I had two giant ones of that, that all of my personal belongings, all the stuff that I actually owned, stuffed into that. And I made my way across the street from the base there. It's, it's Camp Pendleton in, in California. The specific detachment was the San Onofre Detachment. I remember making my way across the main road there to the bus stop, waiting for a bus to come pick me up and take me on that wonderful two-and-a-half, almost three-day journey back to Texas where I was see my wife again for the first time in a number of months. And can you imagine if I was sitting there in that bus stop and if someone had walked along and posed this sort of question to me or had made this kind of statement to me, oh, so you're being discharged from the Marine Corps, are you? I guess that means you don't love freedom anymore. Does that sound like a reasonable question to ask? Of course not. Of course not. To say that you are leaving the service behind is not to say that you no longer believe in the things that the service stood for. Now, interestingly enough, that is very much what Paul is facing here in Romans chapter 7. He's making a very profound statement starting all the way back in chapter 5, and he's continued to argue this point through chapter 6, and his statement is this, to believe in Christ is to be severed from the law, to be discharged from its obligations, to which the response would be, oh, so you don't love the law anymore, you're not a part of the law anymore, I guess that means you don't love godliness anymore. I guess that means you don't want to obey righteousness anymore. And Paul's response to that is to say, that's ridiculous. In much the same way as if someone were to ask me such a dumbfounding and perplexing question as, you're leaving behind the Marine Corps, that must mean you don't love freedom anymore. Paul responds to this kind of a question today. Now, as we look at it, as we begin to unpack what Paul says here, what we have seen negatively in chapter 6 is that not being under the law negatively means that sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer the slave driver, the taskmaster that you serve anymore. So not being under the law negatively means sin does not control you. But then the question begs us, it behooves us to wrestle with this, and indeed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul takes up this question now in chapter 7, and he starts to pose it positively. If, then, we are no longer under the slave master of sin then positively, who is it we serve? Who is the master that controls us? Does not being under the law mean that we can just live according to whatever dictates we want? Paul says, no, that is not my gospel. And as we work our way through Romans chapter 7, what we shall see is that being free from the law means that we actually are called to a higher standard 
of morality and virtue than anything that was presented under the Mosaic Covenant. Look with me, chapter 7, verses 1 and following. Paul then takes up this uh, question. He says, don't you know, brothers? And he says quite clearly, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, he has in view here very clearly the Mosaic law. Audience matters because we've seen previously in the book of Romans, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, that Paul deals with the moral code that is written on everybody's heart. But here, he's not dealing with morality in general. He's dealing with the Mosaic Covenant in specific. That's what he's dealing with particularly here. He says, I am speaking to those uh, who know the law. Now, if you go, if you just flip the page, if you need to, you go all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 20, you'll recall at the tail end of chapter 5, Paul says the law, and he's referencing the Mosaic law, he says the law came in to increase the trespass says, God gave the law through Moses in order to make us sin more. That's what he's driving at. And he's going to pick that theme up here in chapter 7 and go back to that theme and continue to argue that theme. But he says the law was brought in by God the Father in order to do something very specific, in order to accomplish a purpose. And he discusses it ever so briefly there. He says the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he goes on to say sin, though, reigned in death. In chapter 6, he begins with a rhetorical question. What should we say? Are we to continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And he begins to address that by means of baptism. And he takes it up again under this metaphor of being employed or being bound as a slave to a particular slave master in verses 15 and following. But then he comes back to that question of the law again, beginning in verse 7. He says, don't you know, brothers, for I am speaking to people who know the law. Given the context of what he said in chapter 5, he's clearly referring back to the Mosaic law. So audience matters here. Whom he's talking to helps us to understand what he's talking about. And here he is clearly addressing Jews who would obviously argue against the beauty of grace, saying you can't have grace because there's no righteousness in grace. You'll just go on sinning however you want. And he's going to argue that that is not the case. He's already done so in chapter 6. But then this would leave us with a question. How does one step away from the law into this grace? And he's going to present from the law a metaphor. He says, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Okay, this is the case. This is the metaphor. And it was true then just as it is true today, that the law taught that while a woman's husband was alive, then she was bound to him. She was his wife. He was her husband. She wasn't in that day and age to divorce him. And of course, for an early period in our country's history, marriage was still very, very binding. Not really much today. The divorce law and the way that our law has changed in recent years, recent decades, it's 
much less of a binding matter today than what it was previously. But the case was made, and Paul is making that case from the Mosaic law, that when you married someone, the spouse was bound to the spouse so long as either spouse, both spouses, were alive. That's what Paul is getting at. She was not to divorce him. He was not to divorce her. However, he says, once the spouse was dead, then the woman would be free to be remarried. He goes on. Verse 3, he says, Accordingly, she'd be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But, he says, if her husband dies, then she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, then she is not an adulteress. And this is true for you and me still to this very day. We're married, but our spouse passes away. When our spouse has died, we are now free from being obligated to that spouse. Death has severed the relationship. The spouse has gone on to be with the Lord, or maybe not as the case may be, but the fact remains the spouse is dead, and now that the spouse is dead, we can marry someone else. That is what Paul is driving at there. Now, he makes an interesting case here in what he's saying because you'll notice that there is a little bit of a change of figure here. You would think that the analogy would carry through to the fact that what Paul's going to say is, well, now the law has died. But he doesn't say that exactly. He flips the analogy around and he says, the law hasn't died, but those of us who were under the law, and again, he's speaking to Jews here, he's saying those of us who were under the law We're dead. We die to our old selves when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, which is an argument that harkens back to chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. The law hasn't died, but you have died to the law. So there has been a death, he says. There has been a separation. And as a result of that, you're now free to be remarried. So the marriage is broken because of the death of one of the spouses. Again, in this case, it's not the death of the law, but it's the death of the believer. And the point that Paul is making is that death has enabled a remarriage to take place. But before we dive too much deeper into this, it would behoove us just to ask certain questions of the Mosaic law. I think in order to deal more competently with this passage, we need to wrap our minds around what the purpose of the law was. And so this morning, I want to just give you a quick primer, a quick overview, and we need to consider exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the Mosaic Law. When it comes to the Mosaic Law, there were three essential aspects to it. The first is this. It was given to Israel. It was only given to Israel. At the time that it was given to Israel, there were all kinds of countries around in Palestine, Canaanites, Philistines, Amorites, Hittites, so forth and so on, and yet the law was given very specifically to Israel. The second thing we need to understand is that the law was given for a very specific period of time. And this is something that Christians don't really appreciate today, but we know it's the case when we look at the cross. When we consider the law, we have the Pentateuch, which is the classic formulation of the law written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus is crucial. Leviticus has to do with the Levitical priesthood. At the center of the law was this understanding that you have sinned, And in case you're thinking perhaps you're not a sinner, we've got all these rules and regulations written all throughout the law that we break all the time, which should show you that indeed you are a sinner. And at the heart of the Mosaic law, therefore, was a Levitical priesthood. You needed someone to go on your behalf to God the Father by means of the temple and offer sacrifice in order that you could be reconciled to God the Father. Your sin required a death. 
That death separates you from God. You are the one that ought to die. But you can be granted mercy if an innocent will die in your place. But you are not able to offer that sacrifice because you are the sinner. And this is why we have the whole book of Leviticus. All kinds of rules around what the priest should do and what they should look like, who the high priest is and what he can do. Laws around offering sacrifices for himself to purify himself before he were to offer sacrifices for anyone else. But then we come to Christ. And Jesus goes in our place to the cross. And as he comes to the end, when he yields his spirit up to the heavenly father, the last thing he says, he cries out with a loud voice. He says, it is finished. And the gospel of Matthew tells us quite specifically in chapter 27 that the veil in the temple, which separated the holy of holies from everyone else, the veil in the temple and the holy of holies in the temple in which only the high priest could go to offer sacrifices for everyone else, that veil was torn in two. So when Jesus is saying, now it is finished, God the Father in heaven is putting his stamp of approval on that, saying, yes, now it is finished. What does that mean? It means we no longer have to be separated from God because of our sins, but in a very real, very practical way, when that earthquake struck, when that temple veil was torn in two, and when the foundations of the temple were, ra- were rattled and rocked because of that earthquake, God is signaling to you and me today that the Mosaic law is finished, it is abolished. God tearing the veil says you no longer need any priest to come on your behalf, you no longer need any other intercessor other than the one that you've been given, and you need no other sacrifice other than the one that has been made, which is Jesus Christ. He is your priest, and his sacrifice has been offered, and it is done forever. Jesus said it, and God confirmed that when he destroyed the temple, when he damaged it and tore that veil in half not necessary anymore. Most Christians agree, and there's no real dispute about this, that around about the 15th century at Sinai, Moses was given the law. And one of the things he was given was a tabernacle. At that point, they were wandering through the wilderness, but they had a tabernacle that was a, an image of the coming temple that Solomon would build. And this was a place of sacrifice. But once Jesus died on the cross, that place of sacrifice was no longer necessary. Because Jesus accomplished everything, which is why God is pleased to tear that veil apart and to say that the dwelling place of God is now with his people. This is a sweet promise, but if you're thinking critically now, what this tells us is the Mosaic law is over. It started at Sinai around about the 15th century when God gave the law to Moses And it ended in the first century with Jesus when God himself tore the veil apart. We have Christ, not Moses. We have grace, not the old covenant. We have the spirit, not the Mosaic law. There is a crucial distinction to be made here. So it was given to the nation of Israel. It was given for a specific period of time. And it was given for a specific purpose. A couple of things. It was in effect, the Constitution of Israel, much like Canada has a uh, Canadian Charter of Rights. It served as a document that would bind the nation together and be its founding principles and the core of its identity. Of course, just like countries today, Israel didn't necessarily follow the law fully or perfectly or completely. Some might object and say, we don't have a Charter of Rights. Guess what? We do. It doesn't matter whether we all follow it perfectly or whether the government follows it perfectly. It's still 
an identifying document that ties us together. Israel didn't follow her Mosaic law perfectly either, but it was still given by God as a document that would serve as a constitution that would tie them together as a nation. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It accomplished its purpose, which Paul has already alluded to back in chapter 5 at the very end. It was brought in to increase the trespass. It was brought in to show Israel that they could never be righteous on their own, no matter how hard they tried. They just couldn't succeed. When Jesus dies, he gives us everything we need to be righteous before the Lord. Jesus is our righteousness. So what this means for you and me today is that we, having placed our faith in Christ, are no longer under the Mosaic law. Not at all. Not at all. Now, at this point, somebody's going to object. Say, yeah, 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 but pastor, surely, like, the Ten Commandments still apply, right? You know, don't lie, don't murder, don't steal. Surely those things are still binding on us, right? You're not saying anything, pastor, (laughs) right? Right? Now, if you'll promise not to take off running out the door and just allow me to get through this next part, I'll go forward. You see, within Baptist circles, we got two kinds of Baptists, and both are wrong. (laughs) You've heard the expression, you put two Baptists in a room and tell them to come to an opinion on something, two Baptists in one room will then emerge with three different opinions on what we ought to do. There's a bit of truth to that statement. Within Baptist circles, we got two kinds of Baptists. Both are wrong. We should be looking for the third kind. But I'll tell you the two, and you'll know them once I identify them for you. First off, we have the law-abiding Baptists. These are individuals who make checklists. These are individuals who have very strict, regimented schedules. You do this at this time. You do this at this time. You do this at this time. And sadly, these are individuals who find too much of their identity in the keeping of that checklist. And they, unfortunately, start to look down at others who are more free spirit, freewheeling types of Baptists. Which brings us to the next kind of Baptist, which I lovingly refer to as the Pyro-Baptists. You say, I've never heard of a Pyro-Baptist before. I think you have. You ever met a Baptist who doesn't smoke cigarettes and yet always has a lighter in his pocket? Why are you having a lighter in your pocket all the time? Oh, you know. And then they kind of get vague and they don't answer any more direct questions at that point. I remember Christmas Eve. This is in the midst of the pandemic. We're out here trying to do the, the drive-in, and I know this guy, and he, I love him. He's a hilarious guy, so he knows I'm joking right now. But we're doing this uh, drive-in movie theater. Uh, you know, it's a Christmas Eve service. We've, we're broad, we got a giant projector. It's at night. We're projecting the, the worship service up on the, on the wall of the, the building next door to us, and every, you know, it's kind of like a drive-in movie theater type of worship service, and we're broadcasting everything that we're doing in here on the radio, and it was a way for us to kind of be together, even though at that time we weren't really allowed to be together. And uh, we're doing this for our Christmas Eve service, and I remember leading up to the Christmas Eve service, it's freezing cold outside, 
and we're, up, we're out there trying to hook in these wires and get this thing all set up, and our fingers are going numb, and I'm like, ugh, I can't. And it was super dark, which is the idea, because we're going to be projecting this thing on the wall of the building next door. And lo and behold, the fellow that is with me, helping me set up, whips a Zippo out of his pocket and goes like that and lights it. And I'm like, oh, that's helpful. I didn't have my cell phone on me, because most people these days whip out their cell phone and turn on their cell phone light. But he whips out a Zippo, and he lights it. And the flickering is there, and it's glowing, and I'm like, oh, thanks. And then after a while, I stopped and I said, why, why do you have a Zippo? <laughs> he says, oh, just because. And I said, do you smoke? He says, nope. So I went back to working. <laughs> I stopped after a while and I said, why do you have a Zippo? <laughs> and he says, because fire purifies. <laughs> it's like holding this thing right next to my head, you know, and I'm like, what? Like, what are you implying here? That we're celebrating the birth of Christ, not the Day of Atonement, okay? We are here celebrating the arrival of Jesus as grace incarnate, not Yom Kippur where we burn things. Okay? He, he knows I'm joking this morning. That was kind of, it's true. We have two types of Baptists. We got the law-abiding Baptists, and then we got the pyro-Baptists who just, there's no law, and we like to watch things burn, right? We are anarchists. So which Baptists are you? Maybe some of you are thinking this morning, which one are you, pastor? Well, I thought that would have been obvious from the children's sermon. Now, if you'll promise not to run, I'll go a little bit further with this passage. The question is this. Are you saying that we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore? That things like murder and lying and stealing are okay? I'm saying that we are not under the Ten Commandments anymore. But before the pyros start flipping out those zippos, listen. It's not to say that murder and lying and stealing are okay. We're not under the Ten Commandments, you say? How can you be so sure? Look at what Paul says in the very next verses. Pick it up in verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, you may not know this just on an initial reading, but for those of you who are very familiar with the Mosaic Law, guess what Paul just cited? It's the 10th commandment. He just cited the 10th commandment in this whole argument that he's making about the fact that we are not under the law anymore, and he's illustrating what the law's purpose was in terms of exacerbating sin, arousing sin, and he illustrates it with coveting. And then he says in verse 8, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, he identifies the commandment, this is clearly the Ten Commandments that he's referring to, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul's statement here is that we're not under the law. You say, does that mean the Ten Commandments? Well, Paul illustrates by talking about the Ten Commandments. 
Paul's statement here then is that we're not under the law. We're not under any part of the Mosaic law. We're not even under the part of the Mosaic law that most Christians think we're under, which is to say the Ten Commandments. You say, whoa, pastor, you're crossing a line. I don't think so. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. Now, before anybody runs for the doors, let me just clarify this. You are not under the Ten Commandments. You are not under the Mosaic law. You are not bound by anything that Moses put down for us. But that does not thereby mean that you're now free to embrace the pyro side of yourself. For all the law-abiding Baptists in the room, you're like, oh, man, I re- I'm out. This guy's heretical. And for the pyro-Baptists in the room, you're like, yeah, I like where this is going. All of you just stop and take a deep breath. Stealing has always been wrong. Murder has always been wrong. Idolatry has always been wrong. You are not free to go on living however you'd like. The Mosaic law was given to Moses. The Ten Commandments were given around about the 15th century B.C. But did God not destroy the whole earth in the flood? And what was his reasoning for doing so? Because he looked upon man and he saw that the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart were nothing but sin constantly. And after the flood, when Noah is emerging from the ark, he builds an altar, he worships God, and God lays down a prohibition against murder. He says, if anyone murders, his life is forfeit. This is centuries before a Mosaic law. And we can go all the way back to the garden. In the Garden of Eden, They sinned, they disobeyed what God had said, they violated his character, and he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Afterwards, you've got Cain and Abel. And what do they do? Well, Cain murders his brother Abel. When they left the garden, they were driven eastward. When Cain murders Abel, the text tells us something interesting. In Genesis, it says Cain, as a result of his crimes, was driven by God eastward. And so the basis for morality is not the Mosaic Covenant. The teaching we have in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 and following is that every time we do something that violates the character of who God is, it separates us from God and it drives us further and further and further from his presence. All of this clearly revealed to us and taught before there ever was anything such as a Mosaic law. Let me put it to you this way. I used to live in the great state of Texas. Did you know that I am no longer bound by the laws of Texas? It's true. When I lived in Texas, I had to pay an American federal income tax. When I lived in Texas, I did not have to pay a personal state income tax. That's because of how great Texas is. (laughs) When I lived in Texas, I could strap a pistol to my hip. And I did sometimes. But then I left Texas. I left behind the jurisdiction of the state of Texas, and I moved to the province of British Columbia. The first wake-up call I had that I wasn't in Texas anymore, Toto, was that I had to pay a provincial as well as a federal income tax. And uh, it was way more than anything I ever paid back in Texas. 
but most jarringly of all, for a cowboy from Texas, you're not allowed to wear a pistol on your hip anymore? <laughs> what? Now, there are some similarities. might surprise you to hear this, but it's true. In Texas, you're actually not allowed to murder people. And when I moved to British Columbia, different laws, different jurisdiction, but I'm still not allowed to murder people here. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is that under the Mosaic law, there were certain things that were given by God, that were revealed by God, that revealed His holy character. And those things were binding. But they're not binding because they're written in the Mosaic law. They're binding because of who He is. And now we've been set free from the Mosaic law with all of its stipulations, with all of its rules. And it's not to say that we're now free to live however we want because we've only been set free from the Mosaic law if we love Jesus and desire to know him and have a relationship with the Father. Sin is still sin. And sin still separates us from the Father. Say, Pastor, do we have to keep the Ten Commandments? No. But do you have to not lie and murder and steal and covet? Yes. Well, because we're under the Ten Commandments? No. We've been removed from the Mosaic Law, but morality is much, much more by the Spirit, not less. This is very crucial. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying we have been discharged. I want you to look back at verse 2. He makes this statement, if uh, she's bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released. Underline that word in your Bible, released. And if you jump on down to verse 6, Paul makes the concluding statement. He says, but now we are released from the law. To be released is to be let go of, to be set free. I think a better translation myself is, discharged. We've been discharged from the law. On that day that I was separated from the United States Marine Corps, I was, as they say, discharged. And I went around and I did the rounds. I went to the PX and the library. I had to go to the the corpsman's office and have a full medical check and all these kinds of things. And everywhere you go, they, they give you the stack of papers. And I remember that day vividly. I went around and I went to this guy and he had to sign off. And I went to that guy and he had to sign off. And I went to this guy and he had to sign off. And I went around and I visited everybody and they all signed off. And I came back to the main clerk and I stood before him and I put my papers before him. And uh, he does what all clerks do and licks his finger almost instantaneously and he starts to flip. And he's got a little stamp and it's bam, bam, stamping. Flipping a page, bam, bam, stamping. Flipping a page, gives me a look. Oh, wait, no, this is okay. Bam, bam, stamps it, flips a page, and you're like, oh, I don't have to go do this all over again. And he gets all the way through, and he stamps it, and he puts everything together, and he goes through it one more time, like 50, 60 pages of stuff, and then he puts a paper clip on it. There's a little basket on his desk. He throws it in the basket. And then he looks at me. I remember it just as clearly today as that day back in 2004. What do I do now? Is, well, I don't know. That's up to you, man. You're out. You've been discharged. For four years of my life, I had somebody telling me when to get out of bed. I had someone telling me when to go to bed. 
I had people telling me when I had to run, when I had to sit, when I had to take instruction, when I had to practice shooting, when I had to practice hand-to-hand combat, when to engage in military movers. I was practicing all of these things all the time, always working hard to be an efficient, good Marine. And when he throws the papers in the basket, he says, you're out, man. My state of relationship with the Marine Corps was completely changed, totally changed. But I still love freedom. Today in churches, there's all kinds of debate that takes place. When we believe in Jesus, we're free to do whatever we want. It's about relationship. It's not about religion. We hear these slogans. Other churches, you go in, they say, no, 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 no. You will be holy or else. They put on a bunch of rules and a bunch of requirements. What we need to see is that when it comes to Mosaic law, we've been set free, we've been severed, we don't keep that anymore. But we absolutely do still strive for holiness because our Heavenly Father is holy. A number of years ago, I went back to Texas to visit my dad. He's getting older now. He's in his late 70s. Actually, now he's in his early 80s. This is when he was in his late 70s. And I'm there visiting, and every day we're walking around, we're visiting, uh, talking, drinking coffee, enjoying each other's company. And uh, we would go for walks through the yard just talking. Love my dad. I noticed up under the eve of the house, the soffit had come loose. There was a squirrel that had gotten up in there and had chewed it and knocked it loose and was probably up in the attic doing whatever else with the insulation up there. And I, I saw it, and I pointed it out to my dad because, let's be honest, every time he came and visited me when I was newly married, he pointed out all the problems with my house all the time. <laughs> oh, the grass is a little long there, son. Like that, I thought I raised you better than that. You know, I heard this all my life. So I'm home with him a few years ago, and I'm like, oh, hey, Dad, the soffit. Like, what is that? I thought you said a better example than that, Dad. Come on. And I'm joking with my dad, and I'm having a good time. And he says to me, yeah, I've been meaning to get to it. But he says, you know, it's like getting harder for me to get up on ladders these days. Yes, sir. I know where he keeps his tools. I know where his things are. I grew up in that house. So one morning I get up early and I get in the car and I drive to Home Depot and I get the materials I need to fix the soffit. I come home, I put up the ladder, I climb up it, I fix the soffit. I go up in the attic, I look around for that squirrel. He must have been out. He wasn't up there, which makes me hate him all that much more because it's hot in Texas and being in the attic looking for a squirrel, that is nuts. But I come back down, and I go to put my tools and my things away, and my dad comes out, and he sees what I've been doing fixing the soffit, and he says, "Ah, oh, he says, Josh, thanks. I appreciate that, but you know, you didn't have to do it. You did not have to do it. If I went my whole life and never did anything nice for my dad, It's a real question of whether or not I love him. He's right when he says I didn't have to do it. 
but because I love him and I want a relationship with him. I wanted to do it. I didn't have to do it. But when I saw it, I saw an opportunity to bless my father. I didn't have to do it, but how could I not have done it? Listen to what Paul says here. Verse 6. We are released from the law. You've been discharged. We have died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way, the way of the Holy Spirit. There are things that you can now do. But in terms of the Mosaic law, there is nothing you have to do. The question is, are you of the Spirit and is God your Father? Or are you still managing checklists? My prayer is that you would embrace God and know him as Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for being our heavenly Father. Thank you for creating a new desire in our heart, Lord. Not a, a sense of fear of ought to, not a sense of checklists. Thank you, Lord, that you have broken us free from legalism. But we also pray that you keep us free from licentiousness. We thank you, Lord, that we are not rule keepers any longer, but we see a growing heresy among us in our churches in Western America, in the West here in North America, in which many are celebrating a libertarian freedom that does not know you. We pray, Lord, that you keep us free from being law-abiding Baptists, but that you also keep us free from being pyro-Baptists. God, by your word and by the blood of Christ, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and make us spirit-filled Baptists. Do this, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.